Long before he was chasing rainbows and stealing gold from leprechauns, today's guest was forging a multi-decade career on stages in Ireland, England, and beginning in the 1990s, America. He won Tony and Olivier Awards for his role in The Seafarer, one of the many plays by Connor McPherson in which he's played a key part, and even with countless TV appearances on the other side of the pond, he has kept his home on stage at such distinguished theatres as London's Royal Court and Royal National Theatre and Ireland's Gate and Abbey Theatres. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Centre. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm pleased to have the opportunity to talk with Jim Norton. Hi, Jim. Hi, thank you very much for having me on. So let us start with your current gig, Finian's Rainbow. Here you are, an authentic Irishman, mm-hmm. doing a musical about Ireland, or well, about Irish characters, though in America, but with a distinctive Irish lilt, written by a bunch of left-wing Jewish guys. <laughs> what is the perception of Finian's Rainbow, both for you as someone of Irish heritage, and, and what do the people in Ireland think of it? Well, I love the show, and I've, I've known it for a long time, and I grew up listening to it on the radio, listening to those songs. And I think it was in about 1964, I, I saw a production of it at the Gaiety Theatre in Dublin, and, uh, of course, I was amazed to, to realize and find out that all these songs that I knew so well were actually contained in this one show. And I thought it was absolutely delightful. I loved it. And the audiences in, in, in Ireland lapped it up. And, in fact, there have been many productions of it since. But was that – now, you say 64. Was mm-hmm. 64 its first time over in Ireland that you were aware of or was that already a revival? It was the first time that I was aware of it having been performed. I, I think that was the first um, uh, performance. So I, already I, you know, more than 15 years after it was exactly. – more than 25 years after yeah. it was written. It took a while to get there. I know there were, there were other, other productions with Milo Shea. The one I saw had a, a very famous Irish comedian called Jimmy O'Dee. And, of course, we had that tradition in Ireland and England, you know, of pantomime. And Jimmy O'Dee was the famous pantomime dame. So huh. he played Finian. And uh, I forget who played the other parts. But I, it was just, I was just blown away by the sheer beauty of the, of the music. Well, that's what's always so interesting. You know, you say you recognized the music. Mm-hmm. Um, but the story was new to you. Yeah, completely. When you saw yeah. it. So it's because the music had become part of just the popular idiot. Exactly, yeah. So what... Then was your reaction to the story, which which some people like to say is is rather eccentric. It is eccentric, but because um, I'd seen so many pantomimes, I saw it in that it was very much in that genre of of pantomime musical. Hmm. Uh, it was so entertaining that you suspend your disbelief. This this scenes go so fast. It's an opportunity for lots of really talented people to come on and do their number and get off, and then go back to the story again. So I had no difficulty with that at all. And it's often been discussed, and certainly even with this revival, that one of the reasons America hasn't seen Finian's Rainbow in in many years in a major production uh, is because of the racial story Mm -hmm. within it. And I'm wondering how that played in Ireland at the time. Was was that at all an issue or again, was it simply accepted as part of the style of the it piece? It was simply ex- accepted as part of the, of the style. I wasn't aware of any uh, objections huh. uh, to the manner in which they did it. I think the way we're doing it at the moment is, is um, far more acceptable. Well, what's always been yeah. startling to me is yeah. it is a piece that was anti-racist mm-hmm. from the get-go, though – 
the language and the style of the era was a little different and perhaps had to be adapted, but it's not as if it was a racist piece of work. Oh, certainly not, no. And in fact, Yeparberg uh, said that, that what he wanted to do was to laugh uh, all kinds of discrimination out of existence. And even though he had very strong political views, I know, very left-wing um, views, uh, he, he didn't want to bash the audience over the head with his, with his political ideals, and he just wanted to present it in, in a palatable way. Hmm. At the same time, getting his message across, which I think he succeeds in doing. Now, I have this long list of work that you've done, but <laughs> I don't see musicals. <laughs> and I'm wondering, have you done other musicals that I just didn't come across or is this really well, your, it's, big, it's, your big musical break? It's been a long, circuitous journey. I love musicals and I love music and I love particularly Broadway uh, musicals. I've always loved them and been interested in them. Um, when I was, a ki- I, st- I was a child actor. I've been acting since I was nine or ten. That's all I've ever done with my life. And I started out as a singer, like quite a good uh, boy soprano voice. And I won a lot of competitions um, in Ireland. And this led to me um, appearing on radio, singing. Well, appearing is hardly the word, but um, being on radio, uh, singing. And uh, at that time, they were looking for someone to play the boy in a long-running radio series in Ireland called The Foley Family. This is way before we had television, and radio was huge in, in Ireland. So I auditioned for the part, and I was cast as, as the role of Brendan, this young kid, can which you, I'd played for five or six years. Can you clarify, because my understanding is that television might have come to Ireland and parts of Ireland much later mm-hmm. than it came to America. So so what years was this that you were doing this? Um, this would have been, uh, let me think, about 1950. Okay, so at the point at which... Television was really starting to take over in the U.S. Yeah. Radio still I mean, television popular. came to Ireland, I think, about 1962, 63. Okay. So we had a long way to go. So uh, the theater was very important, uh, but radio was, was uh, commanded huge attention. Hmm. Uh, so, so I worked in radio uh, a lot uh, as, a, as a boy actor. And then in, I think, 1957, just after I'd left school, uh, they had at that time – Sadly, not there anymore. They had a repertory company of about 25 actors who were under under contract to the Irish radio station, and they they produced plays, documentaries, short story readings. Uh, uh, so I became a member of that company when I was, I think, 19. Mm-hmm. It was a terrific learning experience for me because my work included being in all the various plays, serials, uh, reading short stories, um, introducing the radio and symphony orchestra, um, narrating documentaries. I mean, the work was endless and reading sports reports. Um, it was a, a fabulous time. Now, we're jumping around, but I have to ask – how did you become an actor at such a young age? Was this something your parents wanted for you? Was this something you wanted for yourself? It was a bit of both. I think mainly it was something I wanted for myself. Um, uh, when I went to junior school to the, to the Sisters of Charity in a place called Harold's Cross in, in Dublin, there was a, a wonderful teacher there called Miss O'Carroll. Miss O'Carroll was crazy about show business. And on Saturdays she had a, a sort of drama class, which my sister and I uh, attended. And uh, I think that's when I first began to realize that there was a world elsewhere. Mm. Uh, I always enjoyed um, – my grandmother was a great storyteller. She came from that wonderful oral tradition of wonderful Irish stories. And when we were very young, we used to go around to visit her on Saturdays and we'd dress up and play out little plays that she would devise for us. And uh, um, I remember she used to cut up orange peels and turn them the other way around and put them – I used to put them in my mouth and make funny teeth and – 
I think I was a character actor even at that age. <laughs> so I was always interested in that and, and because of my singing as well. Well, that brings us back. I mm-hmm. was asking – we got to this from asking about musicals. So you sang as a child. I sang as a child and I'd, I had a very good – I played piano not very well. Um, but I had a very good music teacher, uh, Jared Shanahan, who had been uh, John McCormick's accompanist on his various tours in Ireland. And when I was about 17 or 18, he's, you know, one day I stopped being a child actor because I woke one morning sounding like Paul Robeson. And that was the end of my <laughs> – <laughs> Yes, my, that was the comparison I was going to make. My soprano days. And uh, Jared said, you know, maybe we should start doing a little bit of light singing to see what kind of voice you have. And he said, I think you've got you know, a fairly good baritone voice there. So I used to go to him once a week, and we would. I was very interested in in German leader. I loved um, Schubert and Schumann and Brahms, all those. I'd been to a couple of um, recitals, and that's the kind of thing I was interested in. Because as a, as an actor, I felt I could interpret these songs. I didn't think I had a voice for opera. So again, I I did some more competitions, and I did fairly well. But um, I went to see uh, a performance uh, of the Dichterliebe with Dietrich Fischer Dieskau. I remember. And I, I was just blown away by this extraordinary voice. And, you know, youth is wasted on the young in a way. And I thought I could never be that good. So I stopped singing. I just – and there was nobody really around to encourage me. So I didn't go on with my studies as a singer. I mean, whenever there was a part that required me to sing, I would, I would do it. But I didn't consider myself a singer. And then in the early 60s, the Cork Opera House was opened. And for their inaugural uh, production, they did South Pacific. And I don't know why, but they asked me to play Cable. It was an amateur production, but they always invited, you know, from Dublin, they invited down a professional actor to be the guest. So I was the guest, and I, and I was, you know, in those days, I said I was blonde and blue-eyed and, and full of confidence. I hadn't learned how frightening it is to be, to be a professional actor. And I played Cable. Um, I don't think I disgraced myself. And I think... That's probably the only other musical I, I've done. So when you were approached about Finian's Rainbow, where admittedly the heaviest of the musical lifting is done by other characters, mm-hmm. yeah. what was your reaction? I mean, had, had anybody come to you over the years with musicals? I did a musical at the National Theatre a couple of years ago. It was it, uh, Wallace Shawn did a version of uh, Mandragola, the Machiavelli play, uh, which was a musical. And in that I played the part of Father Timoteo. And Father Timoteo, when he had a few drinks, imagined that he was Frank Sinatra. So I had a, a nice song called White Lies, which I sang uh, with an old girl orchestra on the Olivier stage. And that was great. But I didn't really consider that was singing because I was playing a part. When I'm playing somebody else, and to me, acting is the great imaginative leap you have to make in order to become somebody else. And I've spent most of my life leaping because I love playing people who aren't me. When I played Father Timoteo in his drunken state, I, I had no difficulty singing this, this nice ballad. But I still didn't ever think of myself as a, as a singer. Hmm. And what happened with Finian was that because I was in a play called The Seafarer, uh, Conor McPherson's play, in which I did a bit of offstage drunken singing at one point, and Jack Vitell, um, whom I knew from when we did The Weir all those years ago, who was one of our producers, uh, came to see it. And on the last night of of um, the seafarer, um, there was a party, but I realized there was also a performance of Juno over at um, City Center um, and that wonderful series of concerts that they do. So I, I slipped away from the party, uh, much to everyone's dismay, I think, hopped in the cab and raced over to see Juno. And, and Jack was there, and we had a chat. 
And now Jack tells the story. He said, I saw you sitting in the seat watching the show, and I remembered I'd seen you singing in, in, um, in Seafarer. And he said, you know, have you ever thought of um, maybe doing a musical? And I said, well, what, what, what? Sometime? Where? <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, he said, well, we're going to do Finian's Rainbow. Would you be interested in playing Finian? And I said, yes, I would. I'd love to because uh, I, I love the Encores series. I just adore them. And um, that was it. Huh. As simple as that. I went back to London and my agent, of course, had happily various things happening, some plays in the West End all of which I turned down because I said, I'm going back to New York and I'm going to be in a musical. And they said, but it's only for five performances. I said, I know, but if I can't do what I want to do at this point in my life, then I never will. So that's what I'm going to do. So I hung out and waited and came back and did Finian, not for a moment thinking that we were going to end up on Broadway. Hmm. So what's, what's the experience? Is the experience of a big Broadway musical different yeah. than, than all of this extensive other work? To me, yes, it is. It's, it's, How? Uh, well, it's, it's a much more <clears throat> cosseted world when you do a play. It's, um, it's a totally different experience. Uh, I hadn't realized how hard people work uh, in a musical. The dancers, the singers, the orchestra, the, the huge number of people that all have to be brought together to, to make this um, a good show. And mm-hmm. I just love, I love being part of, a, of a, a company. I've always loved to be part of an ensemble. That's why I love Connor's plays and Sebastian Barry's plays because they're, they're usually a cast of five or six and everybody has a, a reasonably good part to play. Um, I, I just loved also the challenge of, uh, of being in a musical. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, a little bit of dancing, a little bit of singing. It was, I was quite overwhelmed and quite shy um, initially in rehearsals because I'm surrounded by people who do this all the time. Hmm. But I do love... Uh, I love the endless possibility of change. Hmm. So I'm, I'm delighted that I'm, I'm doing it and I'm having a wonderful time. Having seen the show, I can only imagine that it's probably... Well, maybe you're still sitting backstage not drunk but singing along. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, every night, you know, when, when Terry White's singing, when Chuck Cooper is doing his stuff, I'm at the side of the stage watching in, in, in amazement and clapping along with the audience. Hmm. I'm, I'm just... I cannot get over how wonderful they are and how brilliantly they reproduce that performance um, night after night. Well, we started talking about your experience in the radio repertory company. Mm -hmm. When did you make the leap? How did you make the leap from radio to stage? I was there a long time. I was there nearly five years because there wasn't much else happening um, theater-wise and no television in Ireland. And I was still learning so much. I mean, some of those actors in that company were very experienced people. And I, I guess in many ways my education began then because they would insist on my reading all the plays that they felt I should read and all the books that they felt an actor should know about. So it, it was a wonderful time. I was the youngest member of the company, so I was cosseted quite a bit by them. But when television started in Ireland, they, one of the first productions they did was um, Moby Dick Rehearsed, the Orson Welles adaptation. Mm-hmm. And I was offered the part of Ishmael. And working for the radio station was like being a practically being a civil servant because it was a government-run company. And I said, you know, could I have permission to go and do them? They said, no, 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 you've got a contract. You have your work to do here. So I said, okay, then I want to leave. I said in my youthful arrogance, <laughs> it's my chance to be on television. But we worked it, we worked it out. But I, I used to stay up all night to learn my lines, and then I would do all my work on radio during the day, and then they let me off for the days I had to film. 
And then uh, slowly, because of that appearance on television, I began to be offered uh, work in the theatre. So I then thought it's time for me to take the leap and go what they used to call freelance. And that's what I did. I, I, I left the repertory company about 1963, I think, and I was then on the open market. And in those early years, you were doing shows like The Zoo Story by mm-hmm. Edward Albee, um, an adaptation of The Dead uh, done by Hugh Leonard, who Americans certainly know from, from the play Da, da yeah, um, and, and Eugene O'Neill, um, A Moon for the Misbegotten. Uh-huh. Um, what, what was the environment of theater at that time that you know, for you to get those it, roles? It How was, active was it? How It was very active. There were so mm-hmm. many theaters. There was the Gate Theater. There was the Abbey. There was the Olympia. There was the Ablana, which was a small theater that was downstairs in, in, the lo- in the bus station in the center of Dublin. And there were lots of companies all over. There was a tremendous amount of work. And, and I just took it for granted. This is what actors did. I mean, I went from play to play. My, my very first play that I did was at the Gate Theater. And mm-hmm. that was Moon for the Misbegotten. And I played the tiny part of the – I can't even remember the name of the character. Mike the, Hogan, who the, runs, who runs the, the away. son who runs yeah, away. who runs away at the beginning of the play. But also I was the assistant stage manager. And that was – to me, it was just wonderful. I got to the theater at 5 o'clock every evening and set all those hundreds of props. And, of course, I had the great joy of working with Anna Manahan, who mm-hmm. played my elder sister, who was absolutely superb. And from there on, I began to get offered better and better parts. And mm. I just became part of the, the fabric of the Dublin theatre. In the late 60s, you made the decision to leave Ireland mm-hmm. and go to London to pursue work. Why that choice? Well, I had used to spend a lot of time reading the Sunday papers, reading Harold Hobson's reviews and reading about what was happening in the London theatre. And... and um, it, it, it always seemed to me that what they were doing was very interesting, and I might, if I could work there, I might learn a bit more, I might develop more. I, I felt a little bit um, in a bit of a straitjacket uh, in, in, in Ireland, even though I was getting lots of work in the theatre. Um, I was in the Abbey, at the Abbey Theatre for a while. I joined the company, and I did a few plays there. Um, but there was a kind of feeling... Uh, among the acting fraternity in Dublin at the time, whenever I said, oh, I'd love to work in London, they said, oh, we've been there. It's all, it's all technique. You know, they can't act. It's all technique. And I said, but that's what I, I don't have any technique. I don't know. I haven't been to drama school as such. I went, to, I had some drama lessons when I was a kid, but, you know, I haven't had any proper training. And I, I, I feel constricted physically. I sometimes feel I just, I'm not able to do what I want to do physically as an actor. Vocally, I want to work on my voice. Um, there's all kinds of areas in which I want to develop, and I feel I can't do it here. So I, I remember mentioning this at the, to the then director of the Abbey Theatre, and I said, you know, why do we only rehearse in the mornings? We never rehearse in the afternoons. They just rehearse in the mornings. And uh, he said, well, you're a very arrogant young man. And I said, I'm not. I'm just ambitious. I want to be a better actor. And I, and I really feel that by, by um, maybe going to London for a while, I could learn more. And he said, well, we're offering you a permanent pensionable position as an actor in the Abbey Theatre. And this kind of light bulb went off my head, and I thought, I don't think I'm ready to be a permanent pensionable actor. I don't think that's what I should be doing at the moment. It should be a bit more scary than that. Hmm. So I got on the boat, on the uh, mail boat, as many actors did before me, and I went to London. 
And I was very fortunate in that the first – in the meantime, what happened was when I did Zoo's story, a London agent came to see it and said, you know, we'll represent you if you want to come to London. So that was a kind of a, a carrot. <laughs> so um, I went to London. I auditioned at the Royal Court. Uh, I met Lindsay Anderson to audition for a part in a play called The Contractor by David Story. And uh, I got that role, and there was a terrific uh, Irish actor, T.P. McKenna, playing the other lead in that show. We played the two leads. We did it at the Royal Court, and it, it then transferred to the West End, and it ran for a year. Hmm. And I thought, this seems too easy. <laughs> well, it does. It sounds startlingly yeah. easy, and because Lindsay Anderson at that point was acclaimed as a film director. Oh, yes. And um, – you know his work with David Story was already well known, and that was literally your first gig. Yeah, yeah, it was extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, we it was a, well. He was a formidable director and a wonderful man, and I learned a huge amount from from working with him. Uh, his his audition process was: you went to the theater, uh, you would have had the script a few days before, and you went into literally a rehearsal room. And that play was cast, and you started rehearsing as if you're going to do it. And that went on for four days, and then you were sent away. Another group of actors came in, did the same thing, and slowly, you know, by a process of distillation, he would find the actors that he felt would work best together. Because he once said to me, "So I, I could never work with someone I didn't like." Hmm. I said, "That's a bit unkind." He said, "No, I have to like the people before I can, and they also have to be able to act." Hmm. So I ended up doing that, and it was it was the most wonderful experience. And then during that time. The Royal Court, in their wisdom, chose about 15 actors, and they said, you know, if you want to come and do classes every day for the next six months, we'll provide everything you need. Well, that's what I was curious about. Yeah. You said you went to learn, so there was actually structured training? Yeah, yes, there was. We had movement classes, mask classes, voice classes. Um, it, was, it was absolutely wonderful. It was like, you know, I suddenly thought this is what it's like to be a professional actor. It's a 24-hour job. Hmm. And then, a short time after that, he, uh, Lindsay directed a play called The Changing Room, another David Story play. And this time he wrote to me and said, we'd like you to play the part of Patsy. And fool that I was, you know, like I say, youth is wasted on the young. I said, no, it's not, it's not a very good part. I don't, think I don't think I should do it. And he wrote to me, I have these letters because I treasure them now. And he said, he said, if I could find a better actor or an actor more right for the part, I'd ask him, but you're the right person to play this part. Please reconsider. So I huh. re reconsidered and I did it. And that, again, was a, a big hit and that went into the West End. But but that that might have been the arrogance of youth. Yes, yeah. <laughs> to say no to Lindsay Anderson Indeed. in a new David story. When I, when I thought about it afterwards, I used to blush with embarrassment at my, my – you know, my – I guess it was lack of experience. But something – again, something really good happened during the run of, of The Contractor. One night, um, Sam Peckinpah and Dustin Hoffman came to see the show because they were looking at the other, act the other Irish actor in the show, Tipa McKenna, to be in a film called Straw Dogs. And uh, they came backstage and they were very friendly and they invited T.P. and myself out for dinner, this smart Italian restaurant on the West End. And we had a nice dinner. And during the meal, Dustin very kindly leant across the table and he said to me, and I was a great part in this film for you, really great part. And I said, well, I don't know. I what, what's the film? What's the part? And um, the next day I got a call from Peckinpah to come out and do a screen test. And I ended up playing the part of Causey in The Rat Catcher and Straw Dogs. And was that your film debut? No, I had done a film back in Ireland. I think it was called The Face of Fu Manchu. 
hmm. <laughs> in which I played a very tiny part. Huh. But uh, that was my first. This is my first kind of feature role in a movie. Well, again, extraordinary and an extraordinary director to say you yeah. come to London, you're taken up by Lindsay Anderson. Then by working with Lindsay Anderson, you're discovered for <laughs> film by Sam Peckinpah. Yeah. That's I mean, it sounds, you know, people say it's luck, but I, I believe that luck is the residue of design. And if I hadn't done those 10 years of, of theater and radio and television Ireland, that nobody in London knew about, I was really serving my time. Mm-hmm. I think all that experience was now beginning to, to, to pay off. Uh-huh. And I'm curious because there's – there's a certain amount of rivalry between theatrical communities everywhere, mm-hmm. whether it's whether it's Ireland and England, whether it's New York and Chicago. All of these people that you'd worked with in Ireland, did you keep in touch with them? What was their reaction ultimately to your decision to go away? Um, it wasn't looked upon terribly favorably, I must say. Uh, and I didn't – I wasn't actually asked – uh, back to work in, in in Dublin for 18 years. Wow. Nobody asked me to do anything. <laughs> so uh, I think that might be the answer. Huh. <laughs> but of course, I kept in touch yeah, with all my friends, Milo Shea, David Kelly, all these people from whom I'd learned so much, Ray McAnally and, and um, Cyril Cusack. I mean, these were people from, who looked after me and, and taught me a lot. Hmm. Now, again, we can't talk about every play that you've done, but I do want to ask, you were in Trevor Griffith's Comedians, which I yes. always found a particularly play. fascinating play. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering how the audiences took to that play in in its original incarnation with Jonathan Price and, and others because it's, it's – Stephen a, Ray. Stephen was in it. Yeah. Stephen Ray as well. It's – it's in many ways can be quite off-putting to an yeah. audience because it's about a performer who has no desire to please the audience. True. It's a very, very disturbing piece, but they loved it. What happened was I, I was then working at the National Theatre and I was in a production of, uh, of um, Playboy of the Western World, which Stephen Ray and I were in. And uh, Richard Eyre directed um, Comedians. And it, it had been done in Nottingham, the Nottingham Theatre. And they were taking it to London. But one, the actor who played the part that I took over was actually Tom Wilkinson. Hmm. And Tom Wilkinson couldn't do it in London because he had a television uh, job to do. So they asked me to take over and they asked um, Stephen Ray to take over. So we took over and we, went into, we did it at the National and then took it into the West End where it was a huge hit. Hmm. Yeah, now the audiences in, in London loved it. In there was this period where you were working a good bit at the National. You just mentioned Playboy of the Western World. Um, you also did a Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Uh, then now, who were you? In I played Laertes. Opposite. Opposite the wonderful Albert Finney. Yeah. Was there a particular concept or approach to that Hamlet? Well, it had been done before. I mean, it had been done at the Old Vic. And then, as you know, the, we moved from the Old Vic down to the new National Theatre on the South Bank. And I think when it was done originally, I wasn't in the company. Simon Ward played Laertes. <coughs> but when they moved to the, um, to the National, I was doing Playboy of the Western World and, and I forget what else I was in. And Peter Hall came to me and said, you know, how about giving Laertes a go? I hmm. said, love to. And it was it was wonderful, and that was it, I was in it when it opened at the at the um, Olivier Theatre. So every night a fencing match, a literal mm-hmm. <laughs> duel amazing fight, absolutely with, with Finney. Yeah, he was 
a joy to work with. He's one of the most generous actors, including Peter O'Toole as well, one of the most generous people I've ever worked with, um, and also has such chutzpah, such a, he's so fearless and he's so brave. Um, it was a joy to be on stage with him. And the fight was ferocious and terrifying and very rough, and we used to make the audience scream because we... We worked so hard on that. We used to do about two hours a day on the fight, and we'd end up just lying on the floor of the of the rehearsal room, exhausted afterwards, because we used broadswords. Mm-hmm. But it was it was very exciting. And then after that, we did uh, we did um, uh, what was it? We did um, Tamburlaine, Tamburlaine mm-hmm. the Great, where I played I played his son in that, where he had to cut my throat on stage, mm-hmm. which he used to love. <laughs> Enjoy that. <laughs> Now I read somewhere, and tell me if this is if this is accurate, that when you'd gone to England at first, you were doing English plays, mm-hmm. and that in fact the theater community at large thought you were English. Yeah, well, I kind of made a decision when I, I didn't want to be the token Irish actor uh, because uh, I really wanted to play as wide a range of, of parts as possible. So apart from uh, from uh, the first play that I did at the court, uh, which was very much an Irish part, a Dublin character, the next play I played a North, North of England character, and so it went on. I, I tried to pick roles that didn't necessarily put me as an Irish actor. I mean, I had an easy facility to play Irish characters, but I really wanted to... Um, broaden my range, if you like. Did you go into auditions when they came up using, not using your, your natural voice? Well, Did this you is my natural on? voice. It's interesting. You see, um, I come from the South Circular Road in Dublin, and a, a lot of people who come from there, Eamon Andrews, who was a famous uh, TV personality, and Gay Byrne, who was a huge kind of doyen of late-night television back in Ireland, they all came from that area. They all have an accent like me or I have an accent like them. And people often mistake us for Canadian or they say, where did you get that mid-Atlantic accent? But that's that's how people on the South Circular Road spoke. Hmm. Well, most of us did. Uh, it was a very interesting area because it bordered on an area called Little Jerusalem. It was a huge Jewish community, um, which I used to go through on my way to school. And my first music teacher lived there. So it was an amalgam. I don't know how this accent evolved, but this is how I've always spoken. Hmm. People often say, well, you don't sound – and here they say, you know, you don't sound Irish. And I say, well, if you pay me, I'll, <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll do Irish for you. <laughs> well, in point of fact, then, you have, to, you have to put on a bit of the brogue sometimes. Well, it's easy. It's there, it's in, it's there in race memory. You know, I, 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 I kind of pride myself on being a bit of a, an expert on Irish accents. So um, they, they come to me easily, mainly because I've worked so hard on them in the past. Hmm. Now – there are a number of playwrights that you've had the opportunity to work on their plays multiple times and rather than go play by play through them. Let's talk about some of those playwrights. In this period um, at the National, it's interesting. You did one Akeborn play at the National and two transfers. You weren't in them at the, at the National or in their original production, but when they moved to the West End, you went into them. That's and right. those are Bedroom Farce, Way Upstream, and Chorus of Disapproval. Mm-hmm. Let's talk first about working with Alan Akeborn. Well, Alan Akeborn is a genius. He's a wonderful director, a wonderful writer, and I enjoyed every second I was ever in his company. It's kind of a sad story in a way. What happened was when, when I was at the National and Bedroom Farce came along, um, Alan and Peter Hall together directed it. 
At that point, Alan wasn't directing his plays solely. Uh, he wasn't directing his plays at the National. It was a kind of, uh, you know, a two-way thing with him and Peter Hall. They approached me about doing um, um, The Bedroom Farce. I auditioned, and they said, we'd love you to play the part of, forget the Richard, the architect. Uh, but at the time, uh, both um, 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 Stephen Ray and myself were members of the company being paid not very much money. And I thought, here's my opportunity to maybe, you know, and I, my accountant said, you've got to, you know, do something about this. You've got to start earning more. So I said, you know, I'd love to do it, but I really would love to, um, if you could just pay me a little more. And they said, no, there's no way we can do that, and this is a wonderful opportunity for you, and uh, it's not about money. And I said, but in my case, sadly, it is. I do need to, you know, earn some more money. And they said no. So I said in that case maybe I should leave because, you know, I don't want to be in a company that doesn't think I'm worth the extra 20 quid or whatever it was I needed a week. So I, I, I didn't do um, Bedroom Fast and it, was, it broke my heart because I loved that play and I wanted so much to do it. And I remember Peter Hall said to me, well, he said, you did say you want to work in America. The show will probably go to Broadway. And he still, I said, but we're only talking about 20 pounds a week. So they said no. So I left the company. And I, uh, by st- I don't know who was up there looking after me. I got a television series in the building next door, London Weekend Television. I got a 13-part series, <laughs> which paid a lot of money by comparison to what I was being paid at the National. And, and um, Stephen also then left the company subsequently. And I was in the second episode of this series uh, when the National came to my agent and said, okay, um, if he wants to do it, well, you know, we'll pay him the 20 quid a week. And uh. I said, well, I can't, I can't leave the show. I can't um, – I'm doing a, a film. I'm, I'm in a television series. And they actually checked out with London Weekend what it would cost to buy me out. I mean, it suddenly – money didn't seem to be a problem. <laughs> where it had broken my heart to have to say no. So life went on. I did the series. And uh, a year later, Peter Hall rang and said, how about we kiss and make up? He said, we're taking the show to um, – to the to um, to the West End, and uh, we'll pay you two hundred and fifty a week if you'd like to play your part again. So I hmm. did in the West End. That's what happened. And so, then a um, couple of years later, uh, again back at the National, um, way upstream. Mm-hmm. That's Alan's play that's set on the barge. <laughs> it's set I on a barge and, and really afloat on the stage. That's it. Yeah. Technically. Difficult to impossible. say the least. Yeah, <laughs> nearly impossible. It was a wonderful play, and of course, again, I was absolutely, you know, thrilled and excited that he actually said, "I want you to play this part." I didn't even have to read for it. It was wonderful, and it was a lovely part and a fascinating play. But it did involve the Littleton Theatre uh, being filled with a couple of thousand gallons of water, so this boat could float on it. <laughs> And it caused lots of controversy because we flooded the stage, we flooded the theater, and we had to close down for a while. The newspapers were full of this waste of public money. But eventually we did it. It opened, and it was a great success. Hmm. And then finally, of, of your Akeborn trilogy, A Chorus of Disapproval. Yeah, which was, again, in the West End. And um, it was another joy. That last – I think we, t- we played for 13 months. Hmm. That was uh, great. That was hmm. just – I love that play. I'm surprised it's never been done on Broadway. It, it just amazes me because it, it offers so much to – you know, for the actors, it's, it's full of music, opera, dance. Uh, and uh, it's, it's extraordinary that it's never been performed. Here. Well, on a percentage basis, after 73 plays, very few of Alan's plays have actually this been done true. on Broadway. Yeah, so, this is true. So it's, it's not alone. Um, let's talk about another playwright, Sebastian Barry. 
Yeah, he's a wonderful. Sebastian's a wonderful poet and a wonderful writer, a wonderful novelist, and uh, he wrote a beautiful play called um, Boss Grady's Boys, which is about two uh, lonely old bachelors living in a in a, a farmhouse in in the south of Ireland, down in Kerry. It's, uh, they're thrown to it with each other. They only have each other, and they live this kind of wonderful fantasy life of telling each other the stories of movies that they've seen. Hmm. It was beautiful, poetic play. And uh, we did that um, at the Abbey. And then we toured, we toured Ireland with it, myself and a wonderful actor called Eamon Kelly. Hmm. And then uh, about four years later, another Sebastian Barry play, White Woman Street. Yeah, extraordinary play because it's actually set in Ohio. It's an American play. It's set in Ohio in 1916, which, of course, was the time of the, the Irish uprising, the Easter uprising. And it's the story of these vagabonds who, who were part of the army who are now, you know, robbing mail trains. Hmm. And the, the leader is, is a, an Irishman who, who left Sligo when he was a teenager and came to America and fought in the Indian Wars. And it's a wonderful play. Again, it's an American play, and it, 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 it's extraordinary. that I don't think it has been um, performed yet. Well, I was going to come around to this, but mm-hmm. certainly in major productions, there may have been regional productions. There yeah. there not necessarily been major New York productions. Mm-hmm. A number of the playwrights that you were working with sort of in the 80s and early 90s were doing a lot of work and you were working in their plays, but they weren't coming over mm-hmm. here either with or without you. Um, which is which is interesting. So I want to come to the to the next, Frank McGinnis. Because you first did of his plays, I believe, The Bread Man. Yes, wonderful play. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, it was for working on a Frank McGinnis play that brought you to America. But I don't p- think people realize not even to New York. I was living in California. I was actually living there. And really? Yeah. Mary and myself, my wife, she was um, under contract to Disney. And um, so we decided to, you know, go and give um, L.A. a go. And we were living there, loving it. I I had never, because I worked as a child actor, I didn't have um, wild teenage years. I was always working. So (laughs) when I finally got to L.A., I thought this is my chance to actually um, have a a wonderful time because I I loved – it was like Island with Sunshine. And I'm I'm a keen runner, so I was on the beach running every day. Mary was working. Um, her agent then said to me, "You know, what are you doing here? Why aren't you doing something?" I said, "Well, I'm I'm just here as the backup. You know, I'm driving Mary to the studios and I'm running on the beach, and I'm just loving being in California." So they sent me up for an episode of um, uh, L.A. Law, hmm. and it was an American part. And I thought, great. So I auditioned for that part and I got it. So I became a kind of local actor. Nobody knew anything about what I'd done back in, in England. So all of I- this, Ireland. Peter O'Toole and Lindsay yeah, Anderson and Albert Finney. Was... Roles, I was just there, you know, seeing what would happen. And uh, uh, Frank McGuinness knew I was there and he knew that they were doing uh, his play. Uh, someone to watch over me down the South Coast rep. So I think he probably made a phone call because they rang me and I went down and met them and I that was my first play on American soil. Yeah. Was there a difference to working on stage in America after all of the companies you'd been part of? Not really. Not 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 with that play because it was just a three-hand. It was a very nice way of easing into uh, working working here. Now it was uh, it was uh, fine. I was very happy doing it. I drove, I think it was 60 miles every day to rehearsal and 60 miles back at night. That was the hard <laughs> bit. And then the next year they asked me back to do a, another play, a play by Tom Murphy, She Stoops to Folly, 
which is a, an adaptation of the Vicar of Wakefield. Hmm. And then a year later, the Abbey rang and said, we want to do it as well. Will you come back to Ireland and do it? Which I did. So that was, that was the, the end of the 18-year moratorium mm-hmm. on, yes. on Jim Norton? Yes. So what was it like going back after all those? I mean, had you visited over the years? I, oh, yes. Of course you, I but had, you just hadn't worked. My family were there. My sister was there. and Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I went back and forth. Um, I can't remember what, what, the, what my return was, if you like, but I think it probably was to the Abbey. Yeah. Hmm. Or it, no, it might have been Sebastian's play. It might have been Boz Grady's Boys. Mm-hmm. Oh, because of the tour, yes. Yeah. That, would, that mm-hmm. would be the be the case. Well, the first thing they said was, you know, when are you going back? But <laughs> when I arrived in Dublin. Mm. But uh, no, it was fine. It was mm. great. And it was great being back there again. So with this tour of playwrights, then we come to the playwright with whom you're probably most associated, Connor mm-hmm. McPherson. How did you first connect with Conor McPherson. Was it the Weir? Was it just an audition? Yes, it was an audition and it was the Weir. I knew his his early work. I'd seen a couple of his early pieces and I'd, I'd read the ones I hadn't seen. Um, with the, it's, 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 it's extraordinary what happened because he's really, Conor's really changed my life because that was like 12 years ago, I think. And I think 12 years ago. Uh, 11, 97, 11 years, 97 yeah. at the Royal Court, I uh-huh. have it. Yeah, so. whenever. And um, at that point, I was thinking, I have, all I've done is wall-to-wall theatre. I just uh, do so many plays. And invariably what happens when I get a nice part in the play and the reviews are good and people come and see it and the casting directors say, we're doing this movie or this TV show, we'd like you to do it, I wasn't free. And I've never left a play to do something else because I'm, I'm amazed when in, in, in New York in particular actors just walk out of shows and, and do film. I mean... I come from a different kind of discipline, if you like. You commit to the show because you love the play and you love what you're doing. So I had missed some really great opportunities by not being available to do them. So I was really thinking seriously about maybe it's time I start working in the theater because it's such hard work. And, um, um, you know, maybe I should really concentrate on trying to get some movies or get some TV work and be a bit more responsible because I'm now kind of moving into my in my 60s. I think I was 60, about that kind of age. And my agent said, you've got to read this play. So she sent me The Weir. And I read it, and uh, I was astounded by it. And I remember thinking, writing in a little diary I keep of comments about things, that everything I know about acting and the little I know about life is contained in this play. I know who this man is. I know who these men are. I understand this. These are the people I grew up with. These are my uncles and my grandfather, all those people. So I was very keen to do it. And I went along to the National, to, to the Royal Court and met Ian Rickson and the casting lady. And we sat and talked for a while. And he said, your agent doesn't want you to, to read. Then, you know, they say that. They, I don't know why. What have you got to hide? <laughs> but I said, okay. And so we had a cup of tea, and I was at the door to leave. And I came back and I said, look, you know, maybe maybe I should read because I don't want to go away and you think that I can't play this part because I really know I can. So we read the final speech um, from the weir, and the three of us ended up in tears. <laughs> it was a very emotional moment. And I went home. I lived quite close to the Royal Court. And as I walked in the door, the phone rang, and they offered me the part. Mm-hmm. And that was... The turning point, it was the most joyous experience. Um, I then met Connor, who was, the, you know, he was a wonderful person, wonderful writer, um, very self-effacing, quiet, brilliant man. 
And he said, you know, it's, it's amazing. He said, uh, my parents used to go and see you in plays in Dublin. And when I told them you were in the play, they were really thrilled. <laughs> so I said, at least your parents know who I am. <laughs> so, so we did it at the court and it, it did great. And we took it to the West End and then we took it to Canada to one of their festivals. And we took it to Brussels to um, the Flemish National Theatre. And by circuitous route, we ended up on Broadway. Hmm. So if I hadn't done that, I probably wouldn't be here. It would seem, perhaps I'm wrong, that this might be the play that you lived with the longest yeah, in your career. Over two years. What what is it like and what is what was that role like to live with over over two years? I mean you'd mentioned a year in an Akeborn mm-hmm. play, but but two years in the Weir is is a very different uh a very different experience, I would imagine. Well, we played it in different theatres. I mean, we, we initially were supposed to open the Royal Court, and sadly, the Royal Court wasn't wasn't ready. Hmm. So we did it uh, in in the Ambassador's a tiny theatre, held a hundred people, uh, and they were sitting on little stools and benches that you know we'd arranged. And in, in it was like a pub theatre, but everybody in town came every night, and the audience was so close you could see you could touch them. Uh, you know, every director, every casting person, was every producer was there. It became, you know, a huge hit. And then we took it into the West End. And I was a bit concerned about the fact that it might be overlooked. So, and I thought that the run at the Ambassadors would be the end of it. So I got in touch with um, a producer in, in, in Dublin, Michael Colgan, who ran the Gate Theatre. And I said, this, I think this is a wonderful play. Please come and see it. So he did, and he booked it for 13 weeks, and we went to Dublin and did it, which, of course, is great for the play and great for Connor. And and then from there we went into the West End, and then we took it to various places and eventually to uh, to New York, hmm. where it ran, I think, for eight months. As we're talking about Connor McPherson, obviously you got to know him mm-hmm. over, these, over these couple of years with the Weir. But then I look here at Come On Over at the Gate, Port Authority – in Lo- the gate playing in London. Uh, later, you did it here at uh, at the Atlantic, uh, Dublin Carol, um, and of course the Seafarer. Mm-hmm. At this point, was Connor writing and simply calling you and saying, yeah. "I've got a part for you." Yeah. What? It's what is unbelievable. it like? I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah. It's an overwhelming sense uh, of of wonder. He would just write these little cryptic notes and say, here's another one, what do you think? I mean, Port Authority, I think, is a wonderful play. I love it. Mm-hmm. And he, he kind of said, yeah, I, I, had, I had you in mind, but I wasn't sure if you'd do it. <laughs> I said, all you could do is ask me. I'd walk over at last to do your plays. And when we did uh, Dublin Carol um, here at the Atlantic, he just rang and said, because uh, Brian Cox played it in, in, and played it brilliantly in, in London. Uh, he said, how do you think about you know coming over and to New York? And I said, yeah. I didn't even ask what the play was. I said, yes, I'll do it. Hmm. So that was, that was um, Dublin, Dublin Carol. And then he, he, he wrote this extraordinary two-hander called Come On Over, which he did in the Dublin Festival. That I don't think it's been seen anywhere apart from there. It's a fascinating piece. Uh, and then he did write a seafarer for me. That was, that was, when I say for me, he wrote the part with me in mind. I ask this question, our listeners will know, when somewhat frequently when talking to an actor who has a playwright writing and saying, I had you in mind, I wrote this for you. When you get a script from Connor, first of all, does it come saying, I want you to look at this part or does it just, I want you to look at this play? 
Usually, um, with Connor, he indicates the part that he's interested in, in you playing. And so when that happens, do you sometimes think, what is it in me that made him want me pl- to play this part, this character? Is it that he's drawing on you or is he taking you places that you didn't necessarily ever think you'd go? Yeah, I think he's taking me places that I never necessarily thought I would go. But he, for some reason, knows that I can go there. We do talk a lot about, you know, acting and, you know, expanding one's ability to play different roles. So there's always a challenge in what he what he writes. Hmm. Uh, but... but um, I don't know the answer to that. It's it's. Uh, I am I am just so overwhelmed with emotion when I'm just talking about it. The fact that this man, who is such a brilliant writer, actually sends me a play and says, "Well, I can. I suppose I can tell tell now that what happened with the seafarer was that he gave me a choice of parts. Hmm. He gave me a choice of either of the two brothers. But then he rather cleverly wrote at the end saying, "But I would obviously would love you to play Richard.'" Um, and we used to joke about the fact, well, I'm the, I'm the oldest, fittest actor you know, so you know I can do this. I'm going to fall down the stairs every night and not, not get hurt. Uh, but um, there was no question of which, which of those parts I would want to play because Richard is just such a – it's such a journey to make every night playing that character. It's mm. a man who's blind, who's an alcoholic, who's depressed. But despite that, all of his plays are about – they're about loss, but they're also about redemption. There's a wonderful redemptive quality in, in his writing. I mean, he's a brilliant young man. He's a he's an extraordinary intellect. Hmm. Uh, in the case of Seafarer, you'd done it in in London, and then did it over here with largely a different cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes, Conrad Hill was the only other actor, right? Who, yeah, apart from so, him. what is it for you in terms of do you do you make adjustments? Do you find that the play plays differently when different actors come into it? Oh, yes. It? I mean, the stage is an interrelated world, as Lindsay Anderson used to say. You always have to be aware of who you're with and listen to what they're doing and observe it and react to it. And, I mean, acting is about reacting. So, yes, the, the dynamic of the play changed quite a bit. But um, he's, a very, he's a wonderful director because he directs his own plays. Um, he does good by stealth. He doesn't say very much. He just lets you get on with it. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're going in the right direction, he leaves you alone. But as soon as you step outside the parameters of what he wants, he'll step in and in a most articulate, forceful way, he'll tell you to get back on, get back on track. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he studied philosophy. He, he studied philosophy at university. And I, I met his, his, his uh, professor, who's a friend of mine. And um, he said that when Connor... Uh, did his final exam at the University College in Dublin. He got some extraordinarily high marks in his philosophy degree, and he also did English. And when his professor said to him, you've, you've done wonders in your philosophy, um, Connor said, yeah, but how did I do in English? <laughs> <laughs> and he was for a while going to teach um, philosophy in, at, at UCD, hmm. uh, but then slowly, you know, the, the world of theater took him over. As we go through all of these playwrights, um, Maybe I didn't know my homework well enough. I only spotted one Martin McDonough for you. Am I am I wrong in that? Uh, that you did a a tour of the Pillow Man. That's right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So and and so another modern Irish voice. What was what was Pillow Man like? That it's, boy, talk about the heart of darkness. Yeah, strange, surreal. People often compare them or analyze the two of them, uh, Connor. 
McPherson and McDonough, but they're totally different hmm. writers. They, they, they come from a totally different direction. I found uh, Pillerman a very disturbing piece to be in because I played the detective, I forget the name of the character, who shoots the young man at the end of the play and I hate guns and I hate violence and to actually hold that gun and, and discharge it every night on stage was, was an alarming thing hmm. <laughs> to have to do. As we're talking about all of this work and we're talking about these playwrights, we're talking about so many modern Irish playwrights mm-hmm. and while we've touched on a few of the classic Irish plays, it's not that your background is just – a wealth of the great earlier Irish writers. Um, you have done Juno and the Paycock mm-hmm. a couple of times. We passed over it from the early part of your career, but you were in it uh, in about 65 with Peter O'Toole. That's right, yeah. That was a, a great break for me. They, Peter O'Toole wanted to do Juno and the Paycock. He wanted to play the captain. And Jack McGarren, who was a formidable um, Irish character actor, um, had never played Joxa. So they got together to do it, and Siobhan McKenna played Juno. I mean, mm. it was like star-studded uh, cast. And they asked me to play Johnny Boyle, who was the, you know, the, the son. Mm. And that was a, an amazing experience, working with those fabulous actors. And then 35 years later, you did an off-Broadway production That's right. for the roundabout uh-huh. here. What what was it like revisiting that play, obviously in a different role, because now you were playing the captain. Exactly. I'd, I'd always wanted to play Joxer. I'd, I'd never played Joxer on stage. I played it on television, but never on stage. And so I was amazed when they approached me. In fact, the reason they approached me is because um, John Crowley directed it brilliantly. The actor who was to have played the captain dropped out at the last minute. And he said, you know, the show's not going to go on unless we can find a captain. So he rang and said, would you do it? And I'd never thought of myself as, as you know, being the actor to play the captain. But I said, yeah, okay, it's a challenge. Let's do it. as New York. Hmm. So it all worked out very well. Hmm. Yeah. Have you had a desire to play more of the classic Irish roles? Clearly, when you moved to London, you were you were avoiding being mm-hmm. typecast as as an Irishman. Um, is that work that you'd still like like to do, or not? Not really. No. I mean, I've, I've happily reached a point now where I don't have any. I don't have a wish list of parts that I want to play. I love working with living writers because you don't have to go to the library and get the books down and you know, you know, pore over learned tomes to find out what they meant. You know, with Conor McPherson, he'll tell you very quickly what he wants, <laughs> uh, as indeed Frank McGuinness and and. Um, all the other, you know, living playwrights that I've, I've worked with. And I find that very exciting. And also I, I feel that, you know, my job as an actor is to carry out the author's intentions and it's much easier to do that when the author's sitting across, <laughs> across the table. <laughs> Coming back around to Finian's Rainbow, uh, which has been very well received, um, do you expect to stick with it a while? Oh, yeah. Yes, I'm, my contract runs till the 5th of July. Hmm next year and um, assuming that it runs that long then I'll yeah I'll be there but has Connor McPherson sent you any other plays that we should be looking for yet he hasn't given he does have a play that he hasn't let me read uh-huh. but, but um, I do know that but he hasn't given any indication um, of anything coming up I think I, I've been very fortunate in that I've been offered two other plays in New York after Finian wow which obviously I can't talk about them now but I mean it's it's very flattering that there there are two other plays uh, awaiting hmm. when, when this ends. And since we've talked about it, 
where is home now for you? Is it still London? Have you? Well, I've spent so much time in in New York in the, over the last few years that I'm, I love it. I'm I'm very happy in New York. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I go back. I visit Ireland. I go back to London. My grandkids live there. In fact, they came over for the first night. Finian. They did. had a great time. And it's the first time they've ever seen me on stage because most of the plays I've been in are not appropriate for <laughs> 11-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I think they'd be very scared to I see Granddad very, in, in The Pillow Man. Exactly. I was very thrilled and, and slightly nervous that they were there. I wanted them to, wanted them to see Granddad doing well. You commented earlier on we were talking about all of these new plays about how many have not necessarily been seen in America, and given now your recognition um, in the shows that you've done, do you want or do you have a bully pulpit to to advocate for more of this new writing from Ireland? To come to the U.S., I don't think they need my help. I think they're doing they're doing very well. Well, certainly Connor <laughs> McPherson and yeah. Martin McDonough mm-hmm. are. And Andrew Walsh, and the, I mean, there's a lot of Irish uh, plays on in New York mm-hmm. are constantly coming over, and there's lots of wonderful new writing. So it's uh, if they're good enough, they'll make it. I think. Hmm. I think the cream will rise to the top. <laughs> and in the meantime, you will be. Stealing the gold in uh, Finian's Rainbow for many months to come. Yeah, and very happily doing it. I mean, I, I don't want to be pretentious about it, but, but to me, acting is, is, is really my vocation. It's what I think I'm here to do. It's the only way I can make sense of my life is by being an actor, by being other people. And I'm just very fortunate that I've been able to make a living um, all this time doing something that I love. And we're fortunate as well. So on that note... Jim Norton, thank you so much for being with us today thank on Downstage so Center. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.